We're going to get into God's Word here now. And as you know, we have uh, been going through the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ as a church. And this particular segment that we just started uh, is what Jesus had to say to the churches, the seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation. Uh, I'm assuming, it's, I'm treating these letters as if they written right to us. Dear Harvest Palis, each one of these letters. And we're going to learn from Christ how to get ready for this new season of ministry in our new building. All right, so are you ready for the topic of the day? Pop quiz last week, the church in Ephesus was really good at truth, but really bad at what? Say it louder. Really good at truth, really bad at, bad at love. They got an F in love. A in truth, F in love. All right, today the church in Smyrna is going to teach us how to suffer. I didn't get an amen. <laughs> the church in Smyrna is going to teach us how to suffer. I know you really didn't want to say that, right? What do you mean how to suffer? I came here to learn how not to suffer, right? I want to be blessed. Um, in this world, you will have trouble. You will. One of the marks of a strong, healthy church is we know truth, we know love, and we know when the Lord calls for a season of suffering, we know how to suffer. That's what we're going to learn today from the letter written to the church in Smyrna. Let's pray together, then we'll get into the Word. Father, we thank you that your Word is honest. You tell us what we can expect from this world which is imperfect And my prayer is that you would speak to us today about our trials. Speak to us today about our suffering. Give us perspective. Lord, our church is on a mountaintop right now. We are at a high point in our story with you. It seems like everything is coming together, but we know we will go through the valley. And Lord, many who are here today are in the valley. It's dark and getting darker, and they're wondering where you're at. Speak to them today. And Lord, whatever else you make our church, make us good at suffering. May the testimonies that come from trials in this room make you look awesome. May you fill this room with stories of people who endure hardship and who love you through it. Grow us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Sorry, I'm, I'm really sick today. If I go into a random sneezing fit, I apologize in advance. I closed my eyes to pray in the first service and almost fell off the stage because I'm losing my balance. So you might have to catch me here uh, at the end of the service. But thank you for bearing with that. But turn to Revelation chapter 2, a uh, letter written to the church in Smyrna. Uh, and in Revelation chapter 2, verse 8 is where we're going to be. little background. We covered a little of this last week, but uh, these letters were written to churches in the same region. In fact, let's put that map up here. Uh, Here's the map of the churches in the region. Uh, John, the Apostle John, is down there. uh, He's spending his retirement exiled on the island of Patmos because he was a follower of Christ. And then the, the the cities with the green circles around them, each one of them got a letter from John. And there's Ephesus in the lower left. We covered them last week. Then Smyrna is just north of Ephesus. The fact that the number is seven is pretty significant. Biblically, that's a number for completion. So it's like seven churches doesn't just mean Jesus only cared about seven churches. It's like in writing to seven, he's writing to all. Does that make sense? So this is applicable to all of us. Uh, In Smyrna, one of the things that they were known for is they were one of the first cities in the Roman Empire to get all crazy about worshiping the the emperor. 
Uh, they, they worshiped the emperor. So if you were a citizen in Smyrna, there was a temple, and part of your life was expected to be worship of the emperor. All right, imagine that. Imagine that in the great state of Illinois. If they started setting up government facilities, you know, one to get your driver's license and then one to worship Rahm Emanuel. Okay? Pay to play, right? Go in there, bow down, burn some incense, you get a great tax break, and you can do business. That's the way Smyrna was set up. Right? And if you didn't worship the emperor, it hurt you financially, it hurt you socially, you were out of the inner circle. Because of it, this church was under pressure, tremendous pressure. Uh, they were making real sacrifices for Christ. Alright, so check out chapter 2, verse 8. It says this, To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write this, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. The slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Here's the first thing I want you to write down. This is, in a nutshell, this is what the sermon's all about. Be faithful. Be faithful. Let no trial sway you. Let no sickness defeat you. Let not even death deter you from following Christ faithfully to the end through every painful and dark trial. Be faithful. That's the message. There's two points today. One is what to be and one is what not to be. Be faithful. You have to understand why Jesus is calling us to be faithful. It's because suffering is a promised reality for all Christians. Uh, Check out 2 Timothy 3.12. We'll put it up on the screen. Hey, say this with me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All right? Uh, if you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, put your hand up. You're trying your best. You want to live a godly All right, great. Put your hand down. If you're guaranteed to suffer in this life, go ahead and put your hand up. Same people. I want to be in the first group, not the second. Can't happen. It's guaranteed. You will suffer. It'll happen. How will you suffer? Uh, you're, you will suffer uh, sickness. Your body is not perfect in this life. doesn't matter. Maybe it'll be your eyes, your back, your knees, your lungs. I don't know. You will suffer. Your body will not be perfect in this life. Uh, Your relationships will break down. You'll be hurt. You'll be betrayed. Maybe by a Christian. Maybe by a child. Maybe by a spouse. Your relationships will cause you suffering. Uh, Financially, you will suffer. You could be doing everything right, and you will go through lean, dark times. Fearful times. Uh, Tragedy will find you out. Loss of life, loss of property. Sudden, unexpected tragedy. Persecution. Somebody in your life who just makes it hard for you to follow Christ. Listen, this is suffering. It's guaranteed. It's going to come into your life. It'll come into the life of every true believer. This is how you will suffer. This is why Jesus is saying to you and me in advance, be faithful. Even unto death, be faithful. Why? Why? He gives us three reasons why we should be faithful. 
Sometimes the Bible gives us motives. Sometimes it gives us methods. Here Jesus gives us three motives why we should be faithful. Here's the first one. Write this down. Because I'm God the Son who died and came to life. Be faithful. Why? Because remember who I am. First thing he says is the words of the first and the last who died and rose again. He said, hey, remember who you follow. And he calls himself a unique unique name. He said, this is the words of the first and the last. What does that mean? Well, Isaiah 44, 6, we'll put it on the screen, says this. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. One of the ways we find out Jesus is God is because he takes titles that are only applicable to God and he puts them on himself. Hey, these are the words of the first and the last. Remember who you follow. The truth is, when you suffer, when the pain starts, you will forget who you follow. When the trial starts, you will forget who you follow. You will follow your fears. You'll be tempted to not believe Christ is who he said. He says, remember who I am. I am the first. I am the last. Hey, I'm the beginning of the story of the universe, and I'm at the end. I'm the beginning of your story, and I'm at the end. First and the last chapter, your origin and your destiny are already written. Anything in between can't change those realities. Do you know you have a sovereign God who brought you into this life, who made some promises about your end? Do you know that the first and the last chapter are done? Whatever happens in between cannot change God's sovereign plan for your life. That's good news. Remember who he is, and then remember what he did. He says here, I am the first and the last, and then he says, who died and came to life. Do you remember what he did? He said, I died. Here's a picture of what he did. Do you remember what he did? Do you remember what he did? I died. He said, remember what I did. He didn't just die. He suffered. He suffered for you. Why? Because the Bible says to make him a merciful high priest who now is familiar with what it's like to suffer in this life. He said, hey, remember what I did. I didn't just die. I suffered for you. Remember who I am. Remember what I did. I suffered for you so I can help you. Listen, listen, this is important. Don't let your pain define who your God is. Let Christ's pain define who your God is. In your trial, when your pain starts telling you your God must be something other than what your Bible, based on what you're going through, you can no longer believe your God is good or there or present or at. Hey, don't let your pain tell you who your God is. Let Christ's pain tell you who your God is. Based on what he went through, the love he showed you, let Christ's pain tell you who your God is. Someone actually asked me this last week if I wanted to be crucified. It was really weird. I went to the studios in Aurora, Harvest owned studios, and I was there talking about this RZIM curriculum. And one of the, there was a producer there from Big Harvest, and they're putting together an Easter montage. And she's like, yeah, we're looking for somebody to be a thief on a cross. Do you want to do it? I was like, aw, I get to be in a movie? I said, what would I have to do? She said, well, we'd you know, pretty much just give you like a loincloth and then we'd cover you in fake blood and like tie you to a cross and we've got to film it outside so it would be freezing cold. And uh, she's like, so are you in? 
And I was like, no, I don't even want to fake that. <laughs> I don't even want to do the pretend form of that. No. So I told him no. <laughs> Missed my big chance. You know, Jesus did the real thing. The real thing with real nails and real blood and real suffering and real death. He did the real thing. I don't even want to pretend that. He says, hey, remember who I am. When your life gets darker and when your trial starts and when suffering gets worse, remember who he is. Remember what he did. I'm God the Son who died and came to life. Listen, don't let your suffering define God's love for you. Let God's love for you define your suffering. Let God's love for you define your suffering, why you're suffering, and where it's going. Here's the next sub-point. Be faithful. I'm God the Son who died and came to life. Be faithful next because I know your earthly trials and your heavenly riches. Write that down. He wants you to know that he knows. He knows your earthly trials exhaustively. He knows your heavenly riches like you don't yet. What does he say here? He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. He says, I know. The word for poverty means basically one who crouches or cowers. It's a beggar. I I know your poverty. I know these people were, they had nothing. They were a poor church. Probably the lower, lower class got together and had some worship and shared whatever they had, but it wasn't much. They were were destitute. Uh, Here's some pictures from our world of people who are, they have nothing. The church in Smyrna had nothing. They were poor. Physically, materially, they didn't have anything. And here they get this letter that says, yeah, I know, I know, things are bad. And uh, it's about to get worse. I know you've got nothing. And here in passing, Jesus says to them, I know your need, your poverty. I know you've got nothing. But listen, he says, but, but you're rich. He says, but you're rich. Meaning on earth, the stuff you have, you're poor. He says, but I see your heavenly condition and you are rich. I see your spiritual condition and you are rich. One of the ways the Bible describes what your uh, condition is when you become a follower of Christ is rich. It's, it's a material way to indicate that something changed about your life. Uh, when you think of rich, who do you think of? Throw out the name of somebody who's rich. Go ahead, just throw a name out there. Yeah, Bill Gates, who else? Yeah, okay, Trump. Uh, I noticed that nobody said uh, Data Fuge. But Data Fuge is an Indian man who is rich, and he wants everyone to know he's rich. Check this out. He, uh, he has a gold shirt. To show off his bling, he decided to make a shirt out of pure gold. It cost him $250,000. Anybody else have a $250,000 shirt at home? I didn't think so. He really wants everyone to know that he's rich. He says his gold is his greatest passion in life. Okay, keep that up there for a second, because one of the ways Jesus wants you to see your spiritual condition is rich. Whatever you lack in this life, whatever you go through, spiritually speaking, he wants you to know you're rich. Now, yes, that means spiritual benefits that aren't material. That means the blessings of salvation, but in addition, it means that heaven is a place that includes great, lavish, material wealth. The streets are made of... Yeah, he wants you to think of it as a place where all of your needs are met forever and you will never need anything again. I know your trials, but I know your heavenly riches. 
in the eternal realm, in the life to come, God has given you everything in Christ Jesus. And whatever you lack in this life, there's no comparison to what you have waiting for you in the next world. And Jesus is there now. He sees it. Man, wait till John gets a load of this. It's all waiting for him. He can't see it yet, but I see it. To him, it's a reality. To you, it's just by faith. Do you know that in the Bible, in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says, He who was rich, that's Jesus, became poor, so that you, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Do you know it says in Ephesians 3, 8, that what we preach is the unsearchable riches of Christ. I'm not going to name it, claim it. I'm not going to promise you a Rolls Royce if you get down on your knees and you believe in the Lord Jesus. Hey, this life isn't your heaven, okay? But there is a heaven, and it's amazing. And Christ wants you to know that whatever you lack in this life, you are spiritually and materially rich eternally because of what he did for you. Knowing that means you can go without some things in this world because you know you've got everything waiting for you in the next life. Hey, I'm God the Son who died and came to life. Hey, I know your earthly trials, but I know your heavenly riches. Here's the next one. Be faithful. Why? Because spiritual warfare is a daily reality. Fill that in. Spiritual warfare is a daily reality. He wants you to have perspective, so he tells you what's going on behind the curtain in, this, in the heavenly places. He says, I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews, so there's a group in Smyrna who pretend to be Jewish, go to the synagogue, try and follow the Ten Commandments. But listen, it says, pretend they're Jews, but they are not. They're a synagogue of Satan. They've compromised. They've sold their souls. They're not even really Jewish. And they're slandering the church. It's one thing to get in trouble for something you really did. Okay, you were bonehead at work. You get in trouble. I can take that. It's another thing to get in trouble because somebody made something up about you that's not true. This church was they're already having a hard time of it. They're about to get in giant trouble because people are going to make some stuff up about them that's not true. Why are they going to get thrown in jail? Why are some of them going to die? Because fake Jews are going to lie to the officials about what they're doing. Wow. Spiritual warfare is a daily reality. It says here, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. So he says, they're a synagogue of Satan. Then he says, behold, the devil will throw some of you in prison that you may be tested for 10 days. You'll have tribulation. All right, so spiritual warfare is a daily reality. Satan, the title means slanderer or accuser. There is a real being in the heavenly realms who tries to throw this world into chaos. It's called spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is the battle between good and evil forces in the heavenly realms that spills over into this world. All right, have you been following what's going on in uh, Ukraine this last several weeks? You've been following that in Kiev in the capital? So check this out. Here's some pictures. Uh, Ukraine is at war. Uh, there's an uprising. There's a picture before the uprising on the left, and the same they overlaid a picture on the right of what it looks like right now. Why? Why? Because, like, battle broke out. And here's a couple other pictures. This is what it looks like when there is an uprising. And the Bible says that there was war in heaven. What threw this world off course? What filled it with evil? Well, first, there was a war in heaven that spilled over into this life. You can deny that and think that I'm talking about fairy tales and who on earth would believe that, but it's true. And in part, it explains why this life is going to be so hard for you. Spiritual warfare is a daily reality. He says here that 
Those in the synagogue of Satan, don't be afraid what you're going to suffer. The devil's going to throw some of you into prison. Let's not go too far. I'm not saying that you know, every time you get a little cold or every time something bad happens to you, it must be Satan himself who's showing up. Okay, we don't believe there's like a demon behind every bush. Uh, but there is a spiritual reality behind this world that makes your problems and your suffering part of a greater unfolding uh, conflict between good and evil. The truth is you will face spiritual warfare. What will that look like in your life? Some of the ways that it will uh, unfold would be um, false accusations. There will be people who accuse you of doing things you're not really guilty of. That's a way that you'll be tested. Physical sickness and illness. Not every illness has a spiritual cause, but some illnesses do. It could be a test. Just read the book of Job. God allowed Satan, based on this accusation, to um, take his health away. Satan said, oh, he'll curse you to your face if he loses his health. Game was on. And in the end, Job maintained his integrity and Satan was disgraced. All right, so your health. Also, Satan will lead you to doubt God's goodness. Did God really say? Did God really say? Challenge what you've been told about your God. It's what he did in the garden. He'll also tempt you by giving you a sinful way out of your problems. Wow, if I just go through that door or do that thing or pay that person or get with that person. Wow, all my problems can go away. And uh, that's not from God. That's called temptation. Satan's really good at getting you out of trials the wrong way. He'll also just bring evil people in your life to harm you, to do wicked things, to say wicked things, to harm you. This is spiritual warfare. Hey, be faithful. I'm God the Son who died and came to life. I know your earthly trials and your heavenly riches and spiritual warfare is a daily reality, so you better be ready to be faithful. This is what we're supposed to do. Now, the second point is only a Two-point sermon, point one. Be faithful, point two. You can write this down. Do not faithlessly fear suffering or tribulation. Do be faithful. Don't faithlessly fear suffering or tribulation. Look at verse 10. It says in verse 10, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Okay, let me get this straight. Jesus sent word through this vision to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos who had to take the time to write stuff down, which is time-consuming. Then he gave it to somebody who, who knows how often these ships arrived at Patmos. And then by boat, it arrived at the mainland. And then somehow at the port, it traveled by human or maybe even animal. Finally got to the city of Smyrna where somebody stood up and started reading. Hey, we got a letter. Apostle John. And, uh, and it said, don't be afraid what you are about to suffer. Some of you are about to put in prison, and for 10 days you're going to have tribulation. Why didn't, if Jesus knew in advance enough to send this letter to alert this church to what they're about to suffer, why wouldn't he just cancel it? I don't know about you, but I would prefer to get the letter you were about to suffer tribulation in 10 days, and some of you were going to die, but I put a stop to that. Just wanted to send you a letter to let you know. They don't get that letter. They get this letter that arrives just in time before a few of them die. Why would he let it happen? He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. He made sure the exhortation and the encouragement arrived just in time to get them ready 
for the trial that was bound to come. Don't faithlessly fear suffering or tribulation. You can jot this down, because I know the duration. He wants them to know that he knows how long it's going to last. He says, for 10 days you'll have tribulation. Some scholars think this is more symbolic. I think it just means 10 days. 10 days. And it's almost in his sovereignty as if Jesus is saying, I've put the cap on it. I've given it an expiration date. I've allowed it to go on for 10 days. I'm telling you in advance. Count it down. Eight, seven, six, done. He's giving them confidence that there's a duration to this trial. Hey, listen, you're giving the same confidence. The truth is, every trial in this life has an expiration date. You might not know how long it's going to last, but he has put an expiration date at the end because he's the first and the last. And you're one day closer now to the end of it than you were yesterday. I know the duration of it. Okay, well, why would, if he knows the duration, why couldn't it be half second? Ow, over. What's with the 10 days? What's with the five years? What if I get a trial that lasts me the rest of my life here? Well, you're going to be tested. You'll be tested so God can show forth your faith. At the same time, you'll be tempted so Satan can try and uh, shipwreck your faith. God means it for good. The enemy means it for evil. It's at the same time. The word tribulation means squeezed into a very narrow place. Okay, so think of, the, think of the smallest closet you have in your house and then imagine me shoving you into it and closing the door. That's tribulation. And then imagine staying there for 10 days. I'll let you out. Not today. Not tomorrow. 10 days. I mean, that alone would be, right? But Jesus says, yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to allow that into the lives of all of my followers. But I'm going to make sure the duration is controlled by me. Well, why wouldn't God just prevent all suffering? Do you want a different God? Do you want a different Bible? In this life, do you want a God who prevents all suffering and trials? Okay, because he's got that ready for you in the next life, but that's not what this world is all about. So why? Why would he allow trials? Well, I can give you seven quick outcomes of trials. Why would he allow it? Well, here's some benefits of trials and tribulation. First, you might want to jot these down. First, it'll improve your witness. It'll improve your witness. And right now, how many people are looking at your Facebook status? Five, six, seven. You put a care page up, you get diagnosed with that, or you start going through that, suddenly thousands of people are reading about your life. It improves your witness. Second, it strengthens your faith. It strengthens your faith. When God comes through for you, your faith is strengthened. Small problems, small faith. Big problems, big faith. Third, it loosens your grip on this life. This is so important because this world, we get pampered. The United States, we get pampered. Why would we want to go on to the next life? Well, during a trial, you realize this world is not your home, okay? And you don't want to live here forever. You want to go on to your home. Trials loosen your grip on this life and remind you you were made. You're a citizen of a different kingdom. Number four, it increases your confidence in God. You trust him to do great things, and when he comes through, you believe him for even more things in the future. Number five, it improves your prayer life. Okay, small group time, go around. Let's share prayer requests. Okay, get to you. What can we pray for for you? Nothing. I'm fine. No, I'm good. Thank you. Yeah, not when you're going through a trial. First one, hands up. I got something big. I need, right? You're not going through anything. Your prayer life, it's hard to keep that furnace hot, but you're going through some stuff. You're the first one with your hand up. It increases your prayer life. Six, it deepens your relationship with other believers. 
you can think that you can make it through this life without the family of God around you, but when you start going through things, if you go it alone, I've seen people try it. It's sad. The main way God wants to get his love and his power in your life is through his church. And maybe you can go without them when the sun's out, but when the storms come, you're going to need a church family around you. Number seven, it shames the enemy. Shames the enemy. When you survive, when you are faithful, when you don't lose heart, he is humiliated and God is glorified. Just say to yourself, this will not be what he uses to take me out. It's going to take a lot more than this for him to stand in triumph over my faith. I know the duration, Jesus says. Don't faithlessly fear suffering or tribulation. The truth is, you live in a waiting room. That's all this world is. You're just waiting for God to open the door and call you home. And there's an expiration date to every trial in this life, and Christ has promised that. But for now, the first and the last uses what's in between to serve his purposes. You've got to be ready for that. Hey, don't faithlessly fear suffering or tribulation. Here's the next one. This one didn't get printed in your bulletin, so you've got to write it out. Um, because I'll give you the crown of life. I know the duration, and because I'll give you the crown of life. You can write that down. Why should I be faithful? Why should I not fear tribulation? Well, because I know the duration, 10 days, it says, be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Jesus wants you to know that there's rewards he has for people who go through the fire by faith and don't give up. You show up in his presence, he's going to have some rewards for you. Some scholars don't like this idea that you get into heaven and then there's other rewards. They say, oh, being with Jesus is the reward. Oh, being in heaven is the reward. Yes, but the New Testament makes it clear that there are some blessings that God is going to hand out that are contingent on your faithfulness in this life. Okay, we can't rewrite scripture. It's just the truth. This is the way he wants you to think about what your day before him in judgment is going to be like. He's going to have some things he can give you. He wants to give them to you. Now, these could be symbolic of opportunities to serve him better. or Who knows what they are? Praise that he could give you, responsibilities you can be put in charge of, or maybe even some material things. I don't even know. But he wants you to know they're there. There's actually five crowns spoken of in the New Testament Americans aren't really big on crowns, are we? Like in the U.S., crowns. Maybe if you watch toddlers and tiaras, you know, crowns. But, you know, crowns are like England, and we showed them, right? You know, crowns. The only crown I ever wore is from Burger King. Uh, But when you think of crown, this is one of the ways he wants you to look forward to being rewarded in his presence, a crown. And, And most of the time in the New Testament, it's really not this, like, gold, blingy, hard, king's crown it's actually more like a a wreath of like garland or something so if you won the olympics back then you would get like this crown this this crown made up of garland or leaves or whatever to show that you're a victor Uh, if you won a battle and you came back they would give like the leader of that battle the general or whatever like a crown so it's almost the equivalent today of like medals okay it's more like medals less like king's crown um so check this out so medals we give medals out at the olympics there's the sochi medals and uh and uh why? Because I won the race. Uh, here's the next one, or generals, you know, or, or marines. Or, you know, what happened? Well, I went through that battle. You know, I survived, and, and so you get a medal. That's kind of what these crowns are all about. And uh, five crowns spoken of in the New Testament. And uh, First here is the crown of life. The crown of life is for those who go through trials without losing heart. By faith. James 1.12, we'll put that on the screen, says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. 
For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. There's also a crown. It's called the imperishable crown. It's for those who finish the race. 1 Corinthians 9.25 says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Uh, there's a crown of boasting in 1 Thessalonians 2.19-20. says this, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. The image there is like the people that Paul led to Christ are going to be like his, his glory, his joy of boasting, his reward, his crown. Like, look, all these people are here because God used me to save them. Crown of boasting. There's also a crown of righteousness. 2 Timothy 4.8 says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which, is the, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So that seems to be tied to living obediently and integrity. Um, and then there's a crown of glory. Crown of glory. Um, uh, yes, it says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This one seems to be tied to Christian leadership. Christian leadership. Now all these crowns, life, imperishable, boasting, righteousness, glory, they do all describe where all of us are going. But the Lord wants you to know that there's going to be some things He rewards in the next life because of what you did in this life. He's telling you in advance so that you can run with perseverance. Hey, hey, I'll give you the crown of life. Don't faithlessly fear suffering or tribulation. Here's the next one, because you'll be a conqueror. Don't faithlessly fear. Why? Because you'll be a conqueror. In verse 11, it says this, who he, has, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You know the battle between good and evil, right and wrong? It's already over. Christ is the victor. You are on the winning side. You will rise up in triumph over whatever you go through in this life. Hey, to the one who conquers, you're going to conquer. You're going to get through this. You're going to stand on the winning side. Here's the last one. Because the second death won't hurt you. I know the duration. I'll give you the crown of life. You'll be a conqueror. The second death won't hurt you. Second death? What's that? All right, here's what the Bible teaches. If you're born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you die once. Oh? If all you have is a physical birthday where you come into this world and then you go on to the next life, you die in this life and you die in that life. If you're born into this world physically and at some point in your life you find Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That's called your second birth. You are born again. You are spiritually born. You're a new creation. You're born twice. You only die once. Physically, death is simply a separation. Death is never an end. It's not like the lights go off and you don't exist anymore. Death is never described that way. Death is like a comma, not a period. Something happens after it. Death is a separation here between you and your physical body and between you and these relationships. That's the first death. If you're a Christian, that's the only death you'll ever know. And that death has lost its sting. All that death can do is move you on to glory. But if you're not a Christian, when you die in this life, there's a judgment awaiting for you in the next life. It's called the second death, when God calls all people of all times into his holy presence, and he goes through your book and tells you all the things you did wrong, and you are condemned. The second death is when hell reaches its full climax and everyone is thrown into the lake of fire. That's called the second death. Jesus says, 
those of you who are going through whatever you're going through in this life, the second death will not hurt you. Meaning, believers, this world is your hell. It's as bad as it's going to get forever. Non-believers, this world is your heaven. Enjoy it. Because once you leave it, things get eternally worse forever and will never change. Why can I go through stuff in this life when I get the diagnosis that I didn't want to get when I lose the job, when I'm going through the darkest time of my life, when it's bad and it gets worse? Why can I go through that? Because this is as bad as it's going to get. The sun's coming up. And I will enter into the kingdom forever. I can go through this because I know where it's leading me. I pity the person who's going through this life without Christ. Because you're going through trials and you're enduring some things and surviving some things and, and, and this is your heaven. And the things you're going to endure in the next life are unimaginable. Hey, believers, listen. In this life, you can lose your health. You can lose your job. You can lose a loved one. You can lose your marriage. You can lose your reputation. But there's things you can never lose. You can never lose your salvation, your inheritance, the Holy Spirit, the perfect body you have waiting for you in the next life. You can never lose your place in paradise Listen, nothing in this life can steal anything in your next life. There is a limit to what suffering can do to you. And take hope, take heart that your eternal inheritance is secure. The second death will not harm you. The worst thing that can happen in this life, if you were to lose your life, will just usher you into glory forever. That's why the Apostle Paul can say in 2 Timothy, The Lord stood by me and delivered me, and he will continue to deliver me from every trial and deliver me safely into his heavenly kingdom. How does that last part happen? By dying. He will continue to deliver me in this life and deliver me safely into his heavenly kingdom. What can this world do to me? That's how we live. Smyrna, interestingly enough, though Smyrna was facing the pressure of persecution and tribulation, of the seven cities that Jesus writes a letter to, Smyrna is the only city that's even left in existence today. The other six, gone. Rubble, ruins, tourist attractions. Smyrna is still there. Isn't that interesting? They endured. Christ wants you to know, whatever you're going through, be faithful, because he's God, the Son. He died and came back. He knows your earthly trials. He knows your heavenly riches. He wants you to remember spiritual warfare is reality. Hey, don't faithlessly fear suffering or tribulation. He's got the duration set. He's got rewards that he's planning to give you. You will be a conqueror. The second death can't hurt you. Let me close by sharing a great quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Lost his life in part because of his Christian witness in World War II by the Nazis. Here's what he says. He says, whether we're young or old makes no difference. What are 20 or 30 or 50 years in the sight of God? Which of us knows how near he or she may be already to the goal? That life only really begins when it ends here on earth. That all that is here is only the prologue before the curtain goes up. That is for young and old alike to think about. Death is hell and night and cold if it is not transformed by our faith. That is just what is so marvelous that we can transform death. I want to give you a chance to pray right now. I don't know what you're going through, but I know that many of you are going through hard times, trials. You wish it 
you wish God would take them away, but he's made it clear that's not what he's going to do. I want to give you a chance right now to bring your suffering and your trial to the Lord, to let his love define your suffering, to remember the suffering of Christ, and to let the suffering of Christ define your God to you. I want to give you a chance to do that by faith. I want to give you a chance to be faithful unto death. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that your word is so honest and clear and true. Thank you that you don't just get us ready for a lifetime filled with blessing and joy and prosperity. You get us ready to suffer. Pain, rejection, betrayal, poverty. You will be with us. Lord, I know that many here in this room have brought their burdens to church with them. Lord, they're feeling crushed. They're feeling pressed. They're feeling persecuted and it's not fair it's not right and maybe this letter that was written to a church thousands of years ago is your heart to them today lord i just want to give them a chance right now in the in the stillness and the silence in this room i want to give them a chance to bring their trial to bring their suffering and pain straight to you so that you can give them heavenly perspective and hope and encouragement hear the prayers of your people Father, whatever else you make our church, may we be good at suffering. Write stories of perseverance, endurance, faith in the lives of people in this room that will inspire others for generations to come. We're not home yet, Lord, and we don't expect this world to become heaven. You are our hope and our peace and our joy. We will be faithful unto death. Bless us as we walk with you through sunshine, through darkness. You are worth it. And we long for your glorious appearing. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.